Warning, the following podcast, which contains strong language and mature content, is unsuitable for children or for the faint of heart. The subject matter discussed will be frightening and graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey spooksters and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara and as always I'm here with my ghoul friend Jessica. Hello! Hello, poor Jessica's dying right now. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to out you. It's okay, guys. <laughs> if I seem very low energy did. today, it is because I am on day two of about a food poisoning. So, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yes. <laughs> so, give her some slack, guys. So, today we are going to be talking about the Lindbergh kidnapping and. I didn't know anything about this, and it's actually pretty interesting. Obviously, if we're if we're doing it, it, if it was not enough like info, we wouldn't have. So it was really cool to learn about. I thought because I think didn't you find it on like an article or something? I can't even remember how we even got it. <laughs> I think if if my memory serves me correctly, we were like brainstorming mm-hmm. what we wanted to do, and I think I just looked up unbelievable crimes. Yeah. Hmm. And I was just looking for like big crimes. And then I was like, oh, my God, like I recognize the Lindbergh name. And I was like, I yeah. don't. And this is so weird that I don't know this story. Right. I, yeah, I had no idea at all. So it's very interesting. It's got it's got yes. some like twists and turns. And, you know, me, I love a good conspiracy theory. And so there's a lot. Mm-hmm. Of, there's not a lot of conspiracy theories, but there's definitely like enough to fuel that. Yeah. So it, <laughs> ma- it made me feel good. So. <laughs> Love that. But before we get into that, if you are new here and you'd like to hang out with us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram with the handle at Three Spooked Girls. We, Jessica and I, are both individually on threads. I couldn't figure out how to like share a profile. So maybe we should just share the Instagrams they're connected to in the link tree, I guess. I I tried and I couldn't do it. Yeah. But if you if you guys follow us on Instagram, you will find our threads mm. if threads is your thing, because we are not playing on x twitter Mm -mm. none of that it exists but we're not on there i just don't anymore under like i never got into twitter i'm starting to get into threads i kind of i don't know it's literally the Mm -hmm. same but i kind of like it i'm gonna just say this about my own personal social media if you request me on facebook i will not accept it because i use it a lot for like my family and stuff however my instagram Instagram. yes i don't care as long as you (laughs) Tara and I were just talking about this. As long as you have like over 10 pictures and your profile wasn't just recently created, I'll, I'll let you follow me. Because <laughs> those people are spammers. Don't, don't yeah. do that one. 
Mm-mm. And mine's just public, so it's fine. But yes, so find us over there if you if those are your things. And I'm also on TikTok, so I do a lot of short form stuff, pretty much similar to here. I also am going to be doing more book type topics since I read a lot, apparently. So that'll be fun. So definitely check that out. My handle for that and for Instagram is spooky underscore sleuth. It's going to be Jessica Bear Stanton, but it's J-E-S-S-K-U-H-B-E-A-R and then Stanton. So Jessica Bear. And that's because my friend Eric always pronounces my my name Jessica. So (laughs) when I was coming up with a handle, I was like, ah, that works. Love it. Love it. Yes. If I had thought about it, I probably could have got it right. But I was like, hmm, I don't want to send like them to some random person on accident. Not that it, that'd be crazy. <laughs> I need, yes, I need to, yeah, it would be really crazy. Someone's like, why do I have this influx? <laughs> you will know it because it's my face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the really bad thing about like Instagram for me is that like it feeds into my ADHD, into my like executive dysfunction. And yeah. Just now, I was like clicking back, and I wanted to be on the home part so that when I went back in, yeah, I saw this like you know those things where they like cook the cheese, like the mm-hmm. cheese wheel, and they like cut oh, off the top yeah, at the restaurant. I'm uh-huh. like, I was like, ooh. So I had to close that out because I will just watch cheese videos all day. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's funny because how Tara and I like share we share videos just to like insight into our friendship is Tara will send me like 95 TikToks <laughs> and I will send her 95 reels. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And then we I'm just an go watch millennial. them. <laughs> yes, I'm an elder millennial, so I get all of my TikToks on reels. Yeah, it's, it is true. It is true, but it's fun. It's okay, because then like we both get to go on our other apps and then uh-huh. like have all this stuff. So then we give each other all the notifications for like reacting to every single fucking one. I know it's it's true. It's fine. And sometimes like <laughs> I'll <laughs> we're like that friends that are like they didn't react to the one I really wanted them to react to. <laughs> or yeah. my favorite is I will have sent her the reel and she will have sent me the TikTok and we didn't mm-hmm. know this. <laughs> yes. Like, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Good good times. All right. Well. Oh, and also our tickets are still on sale for our live show. So go get those. All of everything's in the link tree. We also have it pinned in the Facebook group as well, which I may not have mentioned if I didn't. That's Three Spooks Girls official. That's where the event announcement dropped first. A lot of our announcements, we have Secret Satan opening up later this month, and it is all done in there. It's kind of like that's our little mothership of the internet, pretty much. Mm -hmm. It's just where we put everything. Yeah. So definitely check it out if that interests you. We have a couple different tiers for our live show for five years of Three Spooked Girls. So we have the general admission. We're having like a middle tier that's general admission plus a QA and a we're doing afterwards just for Mm -hmm. those peeps. And then we also have our top tier, biggest tier. I'm not sure which to call it. So you get all of the previous. And then you're also getting a swag bundle from Jessica and I. And it's kind of going back to like when we first started doing more material swag stuff. Mm-hmm. We're making we used it. To, yeah. <laughs> we I used know, to I, do that. Yeah. I was like super excited. Like I told Tara, I was like, I'm going to do this. I already got the the image, like the graphic. And then I was like, oh, I can't sit still for three hours. 
<laughs> so they will be there. But yeah, so definitely check it out. You'll like yeah. them. You will. You'll like them. Yeah, we own. That's actually almost sold out because since we are customizing some of this stuff ourselves, we had to obviously set like an attainable number. <laughs> so we actually, as of recording time for us today, we only have eight spots left at that tier. So if that is something you're interested in, definitely get it while you can. Because once those are gone, that's going to be it. So anyways, <laughs> that and then Secret Satan on the 15th. So coming up soon. All the fun things. I know. I'm so excited for Secret Satan. Right. This is, you know, this is our like time of year where we shine <laughs> with all of our stuffs. I know. And it's been so good because like both Tara and are like, we've got stuff for Secret Satan. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I've already bought some stuff. I have it on my little side table, just chilling, waiting. I don't even, it isn't even open yet, but I already got some stuff. I think Kelly bought some stuff too already, so... We're all a little, like, our mods and us are a little crazy about Secret <laughs> yeah. Satan. We're, we're big fans. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now that we have this super long intro, we're going to go ahead and get into the Lindbergh kidnapping. Now, before we discuss the victim of the kidnapping, we are going to talk about his dad because he plays a big part in this case. So, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. was born on February 4th, 1902 in Detroit, Michigan, to his father, Charles Sr., who had immigrated from Sweden to Melrose, Minnesota when he was a baby. And his mother was Evangeline Lodge, Evangeline Lodge Land Lindbergh from Detroit. So his mom was originally from Detroit. And he had, Charles Jr. had three older siblings. He had three sisters, Lillian, Edith, and Eva. Now, his parents separated in 1909 when Lindbergh was about seven years old. His father was a congressman as well from 1907 to 1917 and was one of the few to oppose the entry of the United States into World War I. Okay. But it said that his congressional term ended one month before the House of Reps voted to declare war on Germany. Oh, shit. Yeah. His mother was a chemistry teacher at Cass Technical High School in Detroit and later at Little Falls High School, which is where Charles Jr. graduated from on June 5th in 1918. It's so crazy. Like, this is well over 100 years ago. I'm just saying. Insane. I know. (laughs) Like, crazy to me. After high school, he studied mechanical engineering at the University of Wisconsin. He did drop out in his sophomore year to pursue his interest in aviation. So after he dropped out, he went to Lincoln, Nebraska, and he made his first solo flight in 1923. And from there, it said he became a barnstormer or a daredevil pilot. So that's cool. And he would perform at fairs and other events. And so like a stunt guy. Yeah, pretty much like like daredevil, but like in a plane. So he's like a blue angel. Yes, exactly. After that, he enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1924 and trained as an Army Air Service Reserve pilot. He later worked as an airmail pilot flying back and forth between St. Louis and Chicago. Now, during this time while he was flying for USPS, this man named Raymond Ortega, he was a hotel owner, was offering a prize of $25,000 
to the first pilot to make the journey from New York to Paris without any stops. So almost a half million today money, y'all. So he wanted to give that as the reward for that flight. And Charles Jr., he obviously wanted, this was right up his alley. He, he loves flying. He's like, hell yeah, that's a lot of money. Cool. Love that. So he started to get some support. So like think like sponsors from different businessmen in St. Louis. And apparently there had been other people who had tried to make this flight and they would fail. Because think this is literally a, almost 100 years ago. I think about the failing part of it, though. Yeah. Like, does that mean they died? Right. I don't know. I'm going to say probably. But Charles Jr. was like, you know what? That's not going to scare me off. So. Oh, so see, he took off on his flight on May <laughs> May 20th, Yay! 1927. Oh, God. He took off from Roosevelt Field in Long Island, New York. He was flying a monoplane named Spirit of St. Louis, and he crossed the Atlantic. And he did survive. He made the flight. So he made it and landed in Paris or near at an airfield near Paris after 33 and a half hours in the air. And during his trip, he traveled more than 3,600 miles. And there was a crowd of more than 100,000 people waiting for him. That's got to be exciting. That's so cool, right? Yeah. And, you know, this, he became a celebrity after this. So, you know, people recognized him. He got tons of awards. He had the one that was highlighted was the Distinguished Flying Cross Medal from President Calvin Coolidge. Ooh. Yeah. And after that, he kind of went on tour. And so he went, he took his plane and he went to different cities. He gave speeches, you know, people, they did parades, everything. Mm -hmm. And the people loved him. They loved him so much that he ended up writing a book called We, and that came out in 1927, and it instantly became a bestseller. So... He turned into a celebrity, and it wasn't even just in the U.S. It was international. Well, obviously in Paris, too, but it was international. Like, everyone around the world knew who this man was. I mean, he literally changed the future, like, yeah. making that flight. When I was hearing that, and they were like, oh, it's like 33 and a half hours to get to uh-huh. Paris. I was like, and now if you made that flight, it's like four. Yeah, it's crazy. He had a couple nicknames. He was called Lucky Lindy and the Lone Eagle. But, oh my gosh, like. It it was just like s- such a pivotal moment in history for sure. So big fucking deal. <laughs> so like I said, he was on tour and everything. And while he was doing his tour, he was in Mexico. And that's where he met his wife, Anne. Ah, Yeah. And he married Anne in 1929. And the following year after they got married, he taught her how to fly a plane. And I think that it's so fucking cool that he taught her how to do that as well. Like, because that time period, you know what I mean? This is how I picture this conversation going between the two of them. And he's like, darling, I think you should learn to fly a plane. And she's probably like, no. And it took him like a whole year. (laughs) You're going to learn to use it. You're going to do this. (laughs) He probably started it. He probably started it as soon as he met her. (laughs) He was like, you want to learn to fly a plane? And she's like, we'll talk about it later. She like hype him up. Yeah, I'm gonna fly a plane later. You, you guarantee it. And then she gets home. I don't want to fly a plane. 
I'm tired. I'm gonna go to bed. <laughs> well, it. <laughs> I feel like it definitely probably was something like that at the beginning, but they ended up both really enjoying this and the privacy that flying, you know, themselves gave them. And together they would make routes for commercial air travel and just go around the world, living their best life. Eventually, though, they did decide that they wanted to settle down, so they purchased an estate in Hopewell, New Jersey, and they had their first child together, Charles Augustus, technically the third, but I guess he's like junior, junior, and he was born on June 22nd, 1930. Hmm. Yeah, so, like, that's so cool. I know that birthday. (laughs) I do, too. This is interesting that, like, two big, like, dates in this person's history are, like, birthdays of people. Connected, yes. So now here's where we get into the kidnapping. So the baby was referred to as Baby Charlie, and he had a really bad cold that lasted the whole weekend in February of 1932. So little baby toddler. On Tuesday, March 1st, Charles and Anne were spending just like a regular evening at home on their estate. And Charlie's nurse, Betty Gow, gave the baby, you know, some medication, rubbed it on his chest because he had had the cold. And by 7.30, Betty and Ann put Charlie Jr. to bed. Betty and the Lindberghs went on their separate chores for the night. And at 10 p.m., Betty went to go check on Charlie, but Charlie was gone. And it was said that Charles had said, I went upstairs to the child's nursery, opened the door, and immediately noticed a lifted window. A strange-looking envelope lay on the sill. I looked at the crib, and it was empty. I ran downstairs, grabbed my rifle, and went into the night. And the strange-looking envelope was a ransom note, which has a bunch of misspellings. So it says, Dear Sir, have $50,000 ready. in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in five bills. After two to four days, I will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or to, it says four, but notify the police. The child is in, I think this was supposed to say good care, but it's G-U-T. Indication for all letters are signatures and three holds. So that was the letter. (laughs) It's a very interesting letter. Yeah. It's like, okay. But by 1030 that night, there was radio news bulletins that were announcing the story nationwide. Every newspaper in the country, you know, they started doing this story as soon as they could, like the following morning. So March, the March 2nd editions, they pulled what they had and they were doing it instead. And it said that they had put this out in California, Michigan, and Mexico. That makes sense. But yeah. And as soon as those editions went out, they were getting sightings, like tips coming in saying they saw the baby Mm. in California. In Michigan, which I'm like, Michigan's random, but Detroit, I guess, and Mexico. But this, none of them were the baby. Mm. I don't know. I'm acting like I'm surprised. Like, I'm- like you don't. It's-, <laughs> it's okay. I know the story. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So Colonel H. Norman Schwarzkopf of the New Jersey State Police was in charge of this investigation. And they set up their headquarters at the Lindbergh's home. 
So they let them set up headquarters there. But Charles did tell them that he essentially had a negotiator. Mm -hmm. He hired his own. And he's like, but you guys can do everything else, please. And so they're like, okay, cool. Well, on March 9th, 1932, John F. Condon, a 72-year-old retired teacher and coach from the Bronx, called the Lindenbergs, claiming that he had made contact with the kidnappers. He, John, had written a letter to the Bronx Home News offering it as a, like, go-between with Lindenberg and the kidnapper. Which is interesting. And the day after his letter was published, someone purported to be the kidnapper contacted him and John operating under the alias Jaffsy. I'm like, that's so fucking weird. Like, okay. It may have been popular then. (laughs) I don't know. Was allowed by, by Charles to try to contact this kidnapper. Apparently, a series of graveyard meetings took place. John came to refer to the kidnapper as Graveyard John. I'm like, why are you calling him your name? But okay. And on April 2nd, the ransom money was delivered by John to Graveyard John while Charles waited in a nearby car. Graveyard John gave other John (laughs) a note supposedly revealing the baby's whereabouts. The note led Charles and John in search of a boat called the Nelly, quote, between Horseneck Beach and Gayhead near Elizabeth Island, end quote. But there was no beach and they did not find baby Charlie. And basically it was all a scam. So obviously did nothing. Just so theatrical. It's so weird. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, it's weird. It's it's super over the top, this whole story. Like, yeah. But then on May 12th, 1932, just 72 days after the kidnapping, the decomposed body of a baby was found in the woods near the Lindbergh home. And they concluded that the child had died due to a fractured skull since the night of the kidnapping. Two days later, Charles identified his son's body by examining his teeth. And now this is when it switched to a murder investigation. Examining the teeth. Mm-hmm. Like the dental records and stuff. I, it, it just was like that Charles did it is what weirds me out. I mean, yeah, I agree. But it's like it's 1932, so like... I mean, unless the kid had like a chipped tooth or something. Maybe. Like they would just look like baby teeth. Yeah. I mean, it's the 30s. So I mean, I'm unless like, he has surprised. like a mold of his child's teeth, which is like, that's weird. Yeah. So the serial numbers from the money used to pay that ransom had been recorded, even though Charles was said to have be like reluctant with doing that. And I'm like, why wouldn't you want to? Because that would track it where they are, what they're, you know, when they spend it. But okay. So the first bill surfaced in New York only three days after the ransom was paid. Over the next two years, more and more would appear and slowly the authorities were able to collect this information to move forward. And finally, on September 19th, 1934, police arrested Bruno Richard Hauptman, who was a carpenter. A search of Hopton's home yielded $14,000 of the Lindbergh ransom. He claimed to be holding it for a friend, Isidore Fish, who had since died. Despite his pleas of innocence, Hopton was indicted in October of 1934 for the murder of baby Charlie. It's my turn. Okay. Like Tara said, Bruno Richard Hauptman 
He was a German immigrant. And basically, he was indicted and he was charged with capital murder. Mm -hmm. Hauptmann would, like, basically the entire time that he, that this was happening to him, he would maintain his innocence. He pled not guilty. He did have an alternative story. So he said that basically he was holding this money for this friend of his, Fisher. Mm-hmm. Fisher dies at some point between yeah. the from the kidnapping to the time that he's arrested. Fisher dies, which yeah. if you were holding money for someone who died, you're like, it's yours well, now, I guess. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like nine. It's possession is nine tenths of the law. I have possessed this. <laughs> <laughs> So he was set for trial. It was going to be in Flemington, New York. And this was now going to be dubbed the crime of this or the trial of the century, which mm-hmm. is interesting because in the 1900s, everything was the fucking trial of the century. Oh, my God. Yeah. Crime of the century. Like, this is, this is what it's dubbed. Literally, <laughs> literally every single one. <laughs> it's like, mm, yeah. you can't all be sorry. <laughs> yeah. It was a little early. It was in the 30s. So he was indicted in 1934. Yeah. His trial started on January 2nd, 1935. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about his trial, and I can actually, even though I just made fun of the whole, it's the trial of the century, they kind of were because at the time, this is the 1930s, you think about it, and it's in New Jersey, 60,000 people showed up, reporters, novelists, movie Holy stars, shit. the social life, they <gasps> all just like came into this town. Damn. Because of his, because of Charles Jr.'s status, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because everyone had been like, I mean, like you said, it was international. He was a hero, yeah. Well, just even like the kidnapping was like national news, like international right. news. So it was right. like it went everywhere, and so people were like really invested in it. So that's what I'm course, saying. Like that's yeah. you know that like everyone who knew him when they saw his name mentioned, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like yeah, they were like we're coming. I kind of picture it like the. The Scott Peterson trial, like how people would yes. come and they had to do like, yeah, it was, there was a lot. Yeah. So here's the problem with Hauptman's defense attorney. Mm-hmm. So it was Edward or Big Ed Riley. And basically he was described as a flamboyant attorney who had better days. Like he, his reputation oh. had definitely like gone like downhill. And how he landed this job of being the defense Mm -hmm. attorney in the biggest case in the nation at the time was basically he would just kind of do it for the rights to Hopman's life story. Of course. So. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. The prosecution would be David T. I believe it's pronounced Weltons. He was the general or the attorney general of New Jersey. This is one of those cases where they had like a lot of evidence in one area and hardly any evidence in, an, in another area. Mm-hmm. Basically, the evidence they had was about $20,000 of the ransom money was mm-hmm. found on his property. Right. And they did, the other was the ransom note. So what they did is they compared the handwriting sample from Hopsman to the ransom note. And there were many similarities. They actually ended up getting eight handwriting experts. The defense didn't do their best to kind of refute this evidence. Instead of going out and like get it, like they did, they reached out and they had two experts in handwriting that were willing to come. They had asked four. Two declined right away. Two were like, you have to pay us and whatnot. And then 
they just kind of flaked on them. They didn't have the right like combativeness or the right angle as a defense mm-hmm. attorney. Now, yeah. in another area, they're missing a shit ton of evidence, like at the home itself. The ladder that was used didn't have Hotman's fingerprints on it. There was none found. Immediately I went, but what if he wore gloves? There wouldn't be fingerprints because if he wore gloves. So, and, Mm. you know, dealing with a ladder on property probably would have been smart to wear gloves. Mm -hmm. So having a ton of evidence up front in the fact that, like, he's caught with the ransom money. Now, this could be two different crimes. You could have someone who saw an opportunity to take advantage of a dire situation Mm. and was like, oh, there was a ransom note. Let's follow up with the ransom, like our own shit, right? Mm -hmm. Also, the fact that there was like this third party entity that was like the mediator. Was it Condon was his name? Mm -hmm. John. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's also weird that he like came out of the woodworks and was like, I had been contacted by this person. Yeah. In my Marion, like, when I first was, like, hearing this, I was like, ooh, I wonder if he's involved, mm-hmm. because that just seems super sketchy. Mm-hmm. The other thing was, is that the body of the child being found so close right. to the property kind of was, like, another big red flag that the defense attorneys really should have gone down, mm-hmm. but it didn't really seem like they had a lot to refute. Also, I don't think Riley was really in it for the, you know, the right reasons. He wanted this, I mean... Whoever was going to write this story or or Hotman's story Mm -hmm. was going to make a killing. Yeah. There was also evidence found that connected Condon, like his phone number and address were like found in Hotman's phone Mm -hmm. or in Hotman's home. Sorry, not phone. (laughs) Today it would be in his phone. You guys, you know what I mean? Yes. Sorry. There was just like all of this evidence kind of like against Hotman. And then there was the extravagant kind of lifestyle he had Mm -hmm. gone into. Like, he bought a $400 radio back then. That's like a $7,000 radio today. Holy shit. Right? Like, could you imagine? Like, (laughs) it would be like the equivalent of someone just going out and, like, buying a boat out of Mm -hmm. nowhere. Essentially. Yeah. And they also went to Germany. That's Mm -hmm. not cheap. Right. So they went on these trips. We know that money had been spent Mm -hmm. so it was kind of like what Mm -hmm. do you do also you have to take into the fact that his big defense was that his friend fisher had given him these to hold Mm -hmm. on to i don't know why like i don't know why you would trust someone with that kind of like (laughs) that much money yeah you're right i mean granted they were like gold like the gold bond things that you Mm -hmm. turn in but like it i don't know there was some There was some, like, weird stuff with it, like, Mm -hmm. his story. Yeah. It didn't really pan out because, actually, let's say that Hopman hadn't done it and Fisher did. Fisher was dead, couldn't, like, stand. But that's also, like, in my mind, if I'm a a prosecutor, I'm like, well, that's convenient. Mm -hmm. That the one person who could cooperate. Well, technically, Hopman's wife was like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, but it's his wife. (laughs) Right, like, you got to... $8,000 $8,000 boat and a trip to Europe. So, you know, they didn't really get an $8,000 boat. It was radio for those who like weren't paying attention earlier. <laughs> so like, what sure the that. fuck? You know, like they didn't get a boat. No, I know they didn't get a boat. No. I'm just being like funny. <laughs> yeah. And, and so like they literally they went for so long. <laughs> also, Fisher died in March of 1934 mm-hmm. around that time. 
This is also like basically they had gone to Germany like right after. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. The reason why Fisher was holding or Fisher had given him the money is that he owed Hotman the money. Ah. So he was like, hold this and then I'll pay you. Mm, but gotcha. if I had been Hotman, I'd have been like, here is my like $75,000 yeah, or right. $7,500. Here's your money back. That type of thing. Yeah. But, you know, it doesn't look good for you when the only person who can cooperate your story is married to you and is directly benefiting. Yeah. Basically, they, the prosecution were like, okay, we can't really refute this because Fisher is dead. So they started mm-hmm. looking into his life around and they found out that his landlord was like, his rent is $3.50 a week and he can't even pay that. Oh, shit. But if he had like thousands of dollars. Yeah. That would have been a huge red flag. It would have been like, no, no. Yeah. He'd live in impoverished, and he's Mm -hmm. impoverished. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. you buying $400 radios. I'm pretty sure he would have survived. Yeah. Or, like, thrived more. He would be be making (laughs) that $3.50. Right. Yeah. So, basically, Riley was like, all this shit is circumstantial. There's actually no reliable witnesses to say that, you know, he stole the money, or he stole this money, or that mm-hmm. he even was, like, around the home of the Lindbergh's to steal the baby. Mm-hmm. So, the member, it started January 2nd. Mm-hmm. On February 13th, the jury delivered their verdict. And he was found guilty of murder in the first degree, and his sentence was death. He's convicted of killing a baby, so... Right. Not surprising. Yeah. <laughs> And this was also 1935, like, yeah. the that sentence was a very popular choice at the time. Yes. Mm-hmm. It was, like, instantaneous. Yeah. There wasn't, like, how now, like, someone will be like, okay, they, they're found guilty. Like, how we just saw the Lori Vallow, like, mm-hmm. Lori Vallow got her verdict read months before she got mm-hmm. her sentencing. Right. But it was instantaneous. And that meant, because of the how fast this process was going to go, mm-hmm. his attorney had to, like, do an appeals. So they filed appeal on June 29th to appeal the sentencing and everything, you know, trying to really bring it back in. And there was just a lot of stuff. But the problem was, is they were on a very short time frame. So they, right. they started all this in June. He was set to be executed in April of 1936. So that's so fast. They, they did appeals. They waved to the governor to like a wave time limits like there's like a 30-day thing that you have to adhere to so they were like Mm -hmm. they asked the governor to kind of like waive that and just nothing was working for them and basically he was executed on april 3rd 1936 at at 8 47 apparently the governor did visit hotman and basically the governor spoke german and they both were like sitting in the jail cell like not the jail cell but like the visitation room i'm assuming Mm mm-hmm I don't know if that's a newer thing, but basically we're like speaking German to one another. Hmm. That was an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. So at this point in time, people are like justice had been served in Mm -hmm. this case. Mm -hmm. This poor baby was kidnapped from its home and this man brutally murdered the baby. And then now we have justice because he's also been executed. There's a lot of conspiracy theories out there that are like different. And we'll talk about those in a minute. But something that did come from this case is that the U.S. Constitution passed the Federal Kidnapping Act, also Ooh. known as the Lindbergh Law. Oh, wow. And this act would make kidnapping a federal offense. So it would allow 
federal investigation or investigators to have authority over those cases. Like that would become their jurisdiction. Oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah. So you ready to talk other theories? Yes. One of the theories with this is that he's innocent and that the police somehow were like either A, not doing their job properly, getting evidence, or Mm -hmm. B, that they like, or that they were just incompetent. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And basically, they were using like outdated methods. They weren't, you know, there was no like real clear chain of evidence type thing. So people were like, this could be just the police got a lead. And went with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've seen that. Another theory was basically that the baby was accidentally killed. Ah. In the home. Someone said that, like, Charles was prankful. And, like, mm-hmm. a theory is, is that he was going to, like, prank people thinking the baby was missing. Mm-hmm. And that he climbed up the ladder, took the baby out the window, and then dropped the baby. <gasps> Oh, no. Realize what happened and then fabricated all of this stuff and then basically set up Hotman. Oh, my God. A random individual. Which is an interesting, an, an interesting like concept. Like, you have this. In today's world, that's where I think we would go first. Like, that, mm-hmm. this way. And basically is that they fabricated this whole missing baby because it gave them time to, like, get rid of the body and try to cover it up, be the frantic parents. They were acting, like, erratic, that, like, mm-hmm. people would be like, it's because they're missing their their child. They're like, you know, the mom is weeping constantly. It would make sense because mm-hmm. their baby's missing, but they could ultimately pin the death on someone else. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we have seen that with children cases that they, you know, over time they've started they look at the parents first you know now if this case like you said if this case happened now that's probably where they would have looked first to be honest with you so it would have been handled very differently for sure for sure for sure and the thought is just that like you know hotman didn't think he'd ever get caught Mm -hmm. the way that some people think about it was two separate crimes but basically they put this crappily written note out yeah. And then Hotman was like, well, I can, you know, forge that type shit. Mm-hmm. And then he gets the money. Yep. He's just taking advantage of a bad situation without knowing this other side of it. Mm-hmm. That it was an accident. Yeah. Because a lot of people would be like, is it an accident that you dropped your fucking kid off a ladder at night? Right. right. That seems yeah. like a bad parenting decision. You, No matter what, you're going to end up. Uh-huh. As of right now, the only person that's been held accountable for this crime is Hotman. Mm-hmm. This case has been very popularized over the years. Yeah. It's been in several books. Agatha Christie like wrote in one of her books. She wrote something similar because uh-huh. it was inspired by this. Uh huh. It's been in movies and whatnot. Oh, I yeah. did not realize there's a whole movie about it called Crime of the Se- of the Century. Oh, came out in 1996. Ooh. And then, do you remember the movie J. Edgar with Leonardo playing J. Edgar Hoover? I didn't watch it, but I remember when it came out. Yes, I haven't watched it either. Mm-hmm. Which is, looks good because apparently it's directed by Clint Eastwood. So, oh, like is it about movies. this? Yeah, well, it's fe- heavily featured. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Because it, it's about his career. Also, 
there's been TV shows, but mm-hmm. in the in 1995, in an episode of The Simpsons, so it's season seven, <gasps> episode eight. I'm just gonna read this uh-huh. from the wiki page. It says, as the FBI raids the Simpsons' house to capture Homer's mother, Mona, Abraham Simpson attempts to stall the police by claiming he's the Lindbergh baby. <gasps> oh my god! <laughs> I wow. was like, that's that happens crazy but the, it was just such an interesting case because it's so juicy yeah if this wasn't real life this would have made a great movie like storyline mm-hmm. it's just really sad because obviously any any case relating to the death of a child is really sad no matter if this was like an actual murder because a lot of people also think that it wasn't it's a tragedy. Necess- yeah well it is a tragedy yeah. but a lot of people think that like maybe hotman didn't mean to kill the baby well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, I feel yeah. like, you know, because we can't like, I don't know. That theory is going to really bug me with this with this one, because it's like it's so realistic that it makes you doubt, you know. It's like one of those things where it was like they got a person that was like, a, I mean, it's just literally your hand was in the cookie jar, sir. Like mm-hmm. you had you had the notes, you had the monies that went right. along with this. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, hmm. You just became the fall guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Damn. Yeah, it was definitely, it was definitely an interesting case. I, yeah, I very. had like, I knew the name. Mm-hmm. And I remember past, refer- like, I've heard references, references to the Lindbergh right. baby, but I honestly thought like for a while that he'd just been like kidnapped and then was returned. I didn't realize it had a terrible ending. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I like now that after I became familiar with it, I think about it and you, you, you're like, oh, it was reference and passing in, you know, all kinds of stuff. But I had no idea what it was at all, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. But definitely interesting for sure. Well, that is going to go ahead and wrap us up for today, y'all. We hope you learned about this case or learned something new. As always, we'll go ahead and see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye.